What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. My name is Dan Valley, coming at you with my super-duper, incredibly esteemed, awesome times awesome, fantabulous, spectaculario, still about to be an Esquire, and I will not let that drop, co-host Andrew <laughs> D. Bailey. Uh, before we get started, I just want to remind, implore, plead, beg everyone to continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. We appreciate everything, anything that you can can give us. Uh, we love seeing the starred ratings go up. If you can spare some time and throw in a written review, we'd really appreciate that. You can also find us wherever podcasts are offered as well, so subscribe and listen to us there if you consume your audio treats in a different medium other than iTunes, but going to iTunes, taking 10 to 15 seconds out of your day, searching Hardwood Knox, giving us a five-star review, subscribing if you haven't already, stealing phones and subscribing for your friends and family, co-workers, enemies, anyone. They'll all thank you in the long run. That is the best way to help out the pod right now, and we really do appreciate it. Just want to remind everyone that you can also Still get 15% off at the NBA Math Shop. That is nbamath.com slash shop. Promo code Benno, B-E-N-O. We had so many mailbag questions when we published the podcast earlier this week. It was funny before we hopped on, Andy was like, let's do a live one and we'll see if we get any responses. And we got so many Facebook and Twitter responses that we're going to do a second mailbag this week because why the hell not? It's August. But before we get started... Just have to ask the question that everyone is dying to know, as always. Andy, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited to answer some more questions. Like you said, we got a ton of interaction on this this week. And in the doldrums of the NBA summer, this seems like a good time to allow you guys to generate the conversation for us. So I'm excited. Me too. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. All right, let's do it then. Um, I'm going to start with a Facebook question from Seth Holcomb. Lakers in four games in the Western Conference Finals over the Warriors, then Lakers in four games over the Celtics in the Finals. So <laughs> I'm going to rephrase this for you. Um, do we think the Lakers have a legitimate title shot this year? No. I don't think so either. Um, is there an argument that they do? I assume Seth was being at least somewhat sarcastic with I this hope question. so because Lakers fans, I'm not saying all of them, but some of them need to stop taking themselves so seriously. Like we're going <laughs> to – that comes with the territory of LeBron. Ask the Cavaliers fans. Like you're going to get made fun of. Um, <laughs> and especially in my Twitter feed, I'm like an equal opportunity, low-hanging fruit specialist. Bad jokes about everybody. I just, I, I just want to remind any Lakers fans who get – upset whenever people say that their team is not going to win the championship or that signing Rajon Rondo was not a good idea. 
that it just comes with the territory and you just need to not take yourselves too seriously. Not all of you, just some. I essentially feel like, and a lot of people have already made this point, uh, but you would think the front office is kind of using this one year as, as sort of a stopgap between this and whatever they do next summer. Which is interesting, too, because LeBron has never exercised this kind of patience before. At least not in the last, like, eight to ten years. Do you and think... I, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I don't, I don't know if he has any... Uh, I mean, I'm sure he thinks in the back of his mind I can get to the finals again. But he, he had to have known the final streak was in much better shape had he stayed in the Eastern Conference. Look, Wanda, if he gets to the finals with this group, he automatically gets the next three MVP awards. That's how it has to work. Just <laughs> and if I if he gets to the finals with this group and gets through the Warriors, uh, forget the GOAT debate. That's beyond over. Right. I just – it's not going to happen. The thing I was going to ask you, though, is – well, I guess, one, they are set up to make a move in the middle of the season. They have an, a good number of salary matching contracts when you look at – um, KCP's $12 million salary, but you actually, in my opinion, probably want to keep him, but Rondo's $9 million salary once his restriction lifts. Uh, Stevenson's making about $4.5 million. You, you and you don't even necessarily have to give up all your youngsters in that deal. Maybe it's just that another team's looking to shed some midseason salary on another expiring contract. Uh, but I would be surprised if they didn't make a move by the trade deadline, like something semi-substantial. I'm not saying get Kwai back from Toronto, but I would be surprised if nothing happened because I do not think that LeBron's patience is that unconditional. All of this being said, and this is what I was going to ask you, do you think he kind of looked at the way his tenures in Miami and Cleveland ended and a light bulb kind of went off? Those teams were old, didn't have a lot of trade assets, expensive, not really built to they could get back to the NBA finals every year, but we saw what happened against the Spurs with the Heat. They really should have lost twice if you don't count mm-hmm. that Ray Allen shot. And then just the Cavaliers slowly didn't even exist on the same plane as the Warriors. And perhaps that's why he's more inclined to exude patience now. Or do you think this is just he doesn't care? Not that he doesn't care, but this isn't about basketball to him at all anymore. I think it's I'm I'm sure there's still some part of it that's about basketball and there's also some part of it that's just about living in LA. That's probably just the reality of that situation, but I also think you're right that maybe something just I mean, just like every other general manager, he's gotten better at his job. So, he's, he's starting to figure out that you need uh you need some long-term assets when you're building a team. And they they just they never did that with Cleveland and eventually it caught up to him. They never did that with with Miami and eventually it caught up to him. So yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe he's finally figured out that yes, I need to sort of approach this in a different way. And even if they don't make a trade, um there's still a part of me that thinks that two or three of these young guys could be really really good and maybe that's the perfect way to sort of usher him into the last phase of his career. I think this Lakers team probably could have been much better this year if they had, you know, we've all joked about the signings they made after LeBron, but just imagine if they had gone after like Seth Curry instead of Rajon Rondo. Um, Luke Bamut. And I, I don't have Lance like, Stevenson. say it again. Luke Bamut instead of Lance Stevenson. Yeah. Just, 
if they had made a bunch of smart moves, they could have gotten better, uh, more modern players with the same amount of money that they spent on these guys who were good five to ten years ago. Um, and they just didn't do it. So their offseason is kind of hard to figure out after the LeBron signing. And again, maybe maybe they just know it's a one-year stopgap. I think that's the benefit of the doubt approach to this. Um, but then there's a more pessimistic view, and I think it's the one that I'm laying out now, that they just didn't go after the right guys. So, And like you said, they, they might not be done. I mean, maybe Jimmy Butler is uh, upset in Minnesota over the course of this entire season, and they go after him at the trade deadline or something. like like Those things can definitely still happen. Um, Lou Aldang for Jimmy Butler straight up. Tibbs might even <laughs> see that as yeah. an upgrade. That's their, maybe that was their play all along. Uh, <laughs> they knew Tibbs would be back, and they could just trade Dang to him. Where uh, you, I got another. Go I was going to just ask you, where do you see the Lakers ending up in the West next year? Because I, in the last mailbag, it seemed like I was a little bit more certain that they yeah. were going to make the playoffs than you were. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they're a lock for wow. the playoffs. Um, but I say that I, I honestly don't think that anybody other than like Golden State and Houston is a lock in the West. I, I basically feel like three through ten is just wide open and two, two random teams in that group could end up being nine and 10. Um, could be San Antonio, could be the Lakers, uh, could be who else am I thinking is in this group? I'm, I'm the Clippers came to mind, but I actually think they're outside that 10. Um, the Grizzlies might be nine or 10 Denver could be nine or 10 again. I mean, they've been nine the last two years. So I wouldn't even be surprised if OKC was nine or 10. It's just going to be so close. I feel like the number three seed might have one or two more wins than number nine, which is pretty close to how it played out last year. Portland had 49 wins at number three, and Denver had 46 wins at number nine. It's just the nature of the Western Conference is insane right now. I agree that I think the the race is going to be that close. I just think that LeBron's team is going to be one of the squads that comes out with a playoff bid. And if the Lakers are at all in danger of not ending their postseason drought, that's when I think then they'll be incentivized to make a move at midseason. Yeah, they'd probably be a lot more aggressive if it was looking dicey. I would be, I'll say this, I'd be floored if this LeBron James team doesn't make the playoffs. I'm not saying I expect them to do anything once they get there. LeBron is LeBron, of course. But if they miss the playoffs, something's gone terribly wrong with LeBron or... I don't know what. I don't even know that I want to have to deal with the takes after uh, if a healthy LeBron yeah. doesn't lead a team to the playoffs. I don't. I don't know that I want to have to deal with the takes thereafter. You'll probably be a, probably be assigned to write some of those takes. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, this is from Brent Door, also on Facebook. This is another Lakers question, so I'm going to kind of piggyback. Being a diehard Kobe-era Lakers fan, do you think if LeBron brings a title back to L.A., Lakers Nation will finally say LeBron is better than Kobe? Shouldn't that be like a thing already? Yeah, I don't really have a pulse on Lakers fans other than like my semi-annual run-ins with the mob on Twitter. Um, <laughs> my semi-annual <laughs> run-ins. I feel like it happens about every six months that I just have like a knockdown drag out with a hundred different Lakers fans on Twitter. 
Last year it was during that. Um, do you remember when things got kind of heated between the Nuggets and the Lakers? Yeah. <laughs> I, I should try to find that. I put together some thread of me just responding to Lakers fans for like hours in the middle of the night. Um, they come after me. So that's, that's my best experience with Lakers Nation like as a whole. I feel like there's always going to be a contingent that has Kobe as like one of the top three players of all time. And I like you'll occasionally even see somebody say he's the GOAT without a hint of sarcasm or self-awareness. So (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. And maybe, maybe they're just, you know, some fans might just latch on to LeBron as soon as he wins a title with the same fervor that they've uh, cling to Kobe for the last few years. But I, I, I can't really make an educated guess on this. Like you said, the objective answer is that LeBron, at what point in LeBron's career did he pass Kobe? Maybe that's a better question. Like year. I mean, in terms of, like are we looking at title? totality or just, <laughs> we looked at LeBron and said he was a better player because that probably should have been like year three or year four LeBron. That's probably true. Like, who's who's objectively the better player? But, like, maybe if we said who had the better legacy, he probably passed him after, like, his second title in Miami, maybe. Maybe even before then. No, probably the second title in Miami. I guess legacy, yeah. But we've done this exercise before, and I don't want to... I don't particularly care for Kobe Bryant, nor do I care about the feelings of people who are going to support him blindly, but I don't want to also turn this into a Kobe bashing podcast. We have talked about how he was never the best player in the NBA during his era. And LeBron has very clearly been the best player of one of the greatest stretches of NBA basketball and popularity for, I would say, 11 or 12 of the 15 years that he's played yeah. out. And I was going to say by the time he's done, it'll be almost two decades that he was the best player. It's, it's incredible to think about. I don't know that I could pinpoint an exact year when – when we would say, okay, LeBron's legacy has to surpass Kobe's, that Miami title might be a good benchmark. Uh, the second one, anyway. Uh, the one certainly by the time in Cleveland when he won, it wasn't even close. Yeah, to me, that was what sealed uh, LeBron over Jordan to beat a team like Golden State. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I even thought, like, I was even starting to lean that way after Cleveland's first loss to the Warriors when he. <laughs> When he made that series competitive with, it was basically him, Tristan Thompson, and Matthew Dellavedova. I just thought, holy cow! Yeah, there. I I think there it should be recognized, even if you're a Kobe diehard, that LeBron is the better basketball player with the better legacy. And to consider otherwise is to only look at rings, which is yeah. if you want to do things that way, that's an oversimplification of the legacy talk and you do yourself a disservice in the debate. You do the game a disservice when you kind of water it down to that point. And it also becomes a lot easier to make arguments against Kobe. If we're just going to count rings, why isn't Bill Russell just the goat of the goats? And so the bigger question would be to me at least, and I'm assuming the answer is no, which is fair. Do you think there? What would LeBron have to do to surpass Kobe in the pantheon of Lakers, or is there nothing that that he could do? What if he just? What if he wins three three titles with them before he retire, retires? So I think I, I'm going to go back to the way that you answered it. He's already 
he's already the greatest Laker ever, correct? Just meaning like he's the best player the Lakers have had. Yes. But in terms of legacy, um, yeah, he's going to have to win two or three because there's a bunch of guys there who did that. And it might not even – that might not even be enough. Just And I, you know what? I will understand those arguments because Kobe was quote-unquote homegrown, stayed there his entire career even though he tried to get out um, at one <laughs> point. I, I would get that. I just – to not recognize that LeBron has the better overall legacy than Kobe would be, I, I don't even know what the word is. It's blasphemous at this point. And I guess this question kind of just speaks to the larger issue of, is there anything LeBron can do to turn people who still don't believe that he's better than Kobe? And I guess if he was going to, it would most likely happen in a Lakers uniform. But I don't doubt with the way his murals have been defaced in LA. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if even if he won a title or two, that people are still yeah. There might be Lakers. There'll be Kobe's fans who don't even care about those titles in in Lakers lore. Yeah, and hopefully, I've I've seen a couple Lakers writers or podcasters. I can't remember specifically who that was. Like this is an extra. This I mean, these people that are defacing murals might not even be Lakers fans. That's true. Which is true. Um, and maybe and if it is, it's a super small subset of. Lakers fans. I think for the the vast majority of them are probably thrilled that LeBron James is there. My brother, who was like a diehard Lakers fan during the Kobe era too, is is suddenly excited about NBA basketball again. So I think he's um, he's certainly invigorated that fan base that probably didn't need any invigoration. Um, but in terms of, I like the way you put it. In terms of legacy among Lakers, he's probably going to have to win multiple titles to be up there with guys like Magic Johnson and Kareem and uh, Jerry West, Kobe Bryant. Um, But I will, I will stand by what I said earlier. He is the best player that the Lakers have ever had, because I think he's the best player that's ever been in the NBA. So. And even if you think he's number two, that would still make him the best player. Yeah, exactly. Do you think his Jersey is going to be retired by them when all said and done? Um, I mean, if he spends the rest of his career, which could be like seven years, then. Wow. Imagine. I can't even. That's not even something I computed. Like, that just didn't translate. LeBron he, spending seven years with the Lakers would be wild. Well, what, what else is he going to do at this point? Oh, I, no, I agree with I you. I mean, I've been wrong about. He's kind, of, he's kind of become a team hopper over the last, I don't know, eight, ten years. So maybe he could go somewhere else again, but. I think this is his last stop, um, especially if he wants to win multiple titles there, because right now you have to, at least for the first two or three years, I think you probably still have to wait out the Warriors window. Right, and that kind so of he, lends itself to the argument that he would be patient. Yeah, If the Lakers hit, you look at their four-player base of Josh Hart, Kyle Kuzma, Brandon Ingram, and Lonzo Ball. You have two superstar talents there, potentially, with Ingram yeah. and Ball. And then you might have two above-average to replacement-level starters with Kuzma and Josh Hart. I find myself being higher on Josh Hart's future than Kyle Kuzma, but that's a different that's a topic for a different day. That's something, when you look at their collective average age and how much they're going to cost on their next contracts, Like that's something that you could build something sustainable around. Maybe this is just a long-term play of LeBron saying, 
I'm going to be here another seven years, and I want to be competing for championships, not necessarily in my first and second year with the Lakers, but definitely years six, seven, maybe eight, which I I don't know when he's going to retire. I don't want that day to come, by the way. that That's going to be like a blow to the league, no matter who's still around. I also can't picture a version of LeBron that isn't LeBron, if that makes any sense. Because you've seen yeah, it with most, like even the greats, even Jordan, when he came back with the the Wizards, like we have this lasting image of them, these superstars, these legends being something less than themselves. And I just can't picture that happening to LeBron. Maybe that's me being ignorant. Maybe it will happen. I'm not ruling it out. But I, I just, for some reason, can't envision it with all that he's done. That's going to be really interesting to see. Like we've, we've talked about a bunch of different players, those who made the transition well from superstardom to end of the bench, basically. Uh, Vince Carter comes to mind. Uh, Dirk. Matt Dirk has been incredible at that transition. Manu Ginobili has been good at that transition. Dirk and Manu obviously aren't like end of the bench guys yet. They're still valuable rotation pieces. And I think that's probably more, that's closer to what LeBron's path will be. Um, but it, yeah, it's crazy to think about a time when like, imagine him coming off the bench for a team. Um, it doesn't even seem possible, but when you get someone to be, like him and what he does is he's almost too important to not, if he's doing I'm 50%, 60% of what he's doing now, it's impossible to, well, yeah, like 50% of what he does now is like probably still more impact than Joe Ingalls. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, he could be a starting level small forward for a long, long if, time. If he already has been. If he's if his health holds up and you look at, I would say, Dirk and Manu, they both had their like injury stints. Um, but if he has comparable health to them or better, the end of his career could just be wild in the sense that we'll have never seen someone play as like that well for that, like even close to that well for that long. No, then that, I think that's already one of his biggest uh, points in the argument against Jordan is longevity. The, the amount of miles that are on that guy, both playoff and regular season is just insane. He already has a huge lead in career wins over a replacement player. And he's only going to add to that <laughs> over the next, you know, five, six, seven, however long it is years it's it's going to be that record is going to look as, as insurmountable as like stockton's assist record by the time lebron is done um just wild to talk about we went on a 20 plus minute rant on this yeah. but lebron's just fascinating on so many levels i i looked something up you had me you got me curious um michael jordan's 2102 season his first with the wizards here are some just like some ran, a random sampling of players that had a worse box plus minus than him. He was 39th in the league that year, which is pretty good. Um, Steve Nash, Pau Gasol, uh, Shane Battier, Chauncey Billups, Dikembe Mutombo. Mutombo was already 35 uh, by that point. Um, Michael Finley, Alonzo Mourning, Kenyon Martin. Jerry Stackhouse, all these guys were below Jordan in box plus minus that year. He was still a top 40 player at age 38 after however long his hiatus was. Do you think, um, 
Go ahead. Do you think that that could be? We know LeBron on some level still wants to chase Jordan, even if he's comfortable with his ring count and his legacy. And I think he's smart enough to understand, like most NBA fans, that the argument goes beyond just the raw ring count. This still has to be in the back of his mind if I play till age 39 or age 40 and I'm a top 20 player still, something that Jordan never did. That has to be something that he's thought about, right? Yeah, I would think so. Um, one last thing on LeBron. So I mentioned this earlier, but I wanted to get the exact number. He has 337 career wins over replacement player. Um, Jordan, who is second, has 281. <laughs> <laughs> so he's already... The longevity I, is because that's a... I get it. It's like, crazy. Yeah, the longevity is just nuts. Um, all right, let's jump to... I lost the question I had keyed up. Okay. <clears throat> this one's on Twitter. Colby Kenneth, at Colby K. Sturge. Um, we kind of talked about this last time. What do you think the Western Conference playoff scene looks like, including records? And then he gives sort of some joking... Records: Warriors eighty-two and zero, Lakers seventy-three and nine, Nuggets fifty and thirty-two. Um, the reason I I grabbed that one, I was wondering what sort of do you have like a wins prediction for the Warriors, the Rockets, maybe the first two or three teams in the West? I don't even know who the second place is going to be in the West. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Warriors, that was one thing you said last time. Warriors, I think, will get to around 60. Even if they kind of futz around, I think they'll get to around 60. I, I, I would be surprised if they won 60s. fewer than 57, 58. I, I think they're going to get back to mid-60s. Yeah, I could see that happening. Uh, if they, especially if DeMarcus Cousins comes back and is just healthy, and he's emblems of healthy, they're just going to be able to like screw around and, and just destroy yeah. certain opponents. The Rockets, I still I think see the Rockets Ro- at mid fifties. Mid fifties, yeah. I want to say the higher end of of the fifties. I still think they'll probably end up being the second best team in the West. the The defensive, the defensive drop off after losing Bamut and Trevor Reza concerns me a little bit. But I think James Ennis is good. Zach Lowe said this on his podcast. They're going to get a wing at some point, and he mentioned someone you and I, I think, have talked about. Damari Carroll on the buyout market this year, if the Nets mm. aren't going to be super competitive and chase a playoff spot, which they probably won't be. They own their own first round pick. They don't really have an incentive to go after, even if they can. And I'm not saying they would if they tried. He, Someone like him, there's been a Kent Bazemore trade rumors. Uh, there's always opportunities that pop up. I think they'll still be second in the West if I had a pick right now. And I think they'll probably end up with like the Warriors win total from last year. 50, 57, 58. And maybe that maybe it's just a matter of these two teams kind of switching places this year. Just yeah. Golden State getting 65 and Houston getting that 58 mark. Yeah, I could see that. Um, we've got Dan. I can hear him running. I hope he leaves this part of the podcast in for our listeners. Let's see. Hello. Now he's back. I was trying to give running commentary. I don't know how uh, 
The only reason I said hello when I came back is because I heard dead silence, so I thought you just paused. (laughs) I forgot that I had like a house phone. (laughs) That doesn't bode well for my commentary, but I I vote we leave that section in because that that will be fun for the listeners. All right, less Um, editing for me. So I think I'm with you. I think Golden State gets to mid-60s. I think Houston is mid to high 50s. And then I already mentioned this in the Lakers discussion, but I honestly think number three through number 10 is going to be, it's going to be like 49 to 46, just like it was last year. Although it dropped off a little bit last year to number 10 because Denver had 46 last year at number nine and the Clippers had 42 at number 10. I actually think that race is going to be a little bit tighter this year and the drop-off will happen from 10 to 11. And I, I, I don't know why, but I'm all aboard this. Mavericks are going to be better trained and I think they might be like high 30s, low 40s. At, uh, that doesn't surprise 11. me that you feel that way as someone who caped for Doncic for like yeah I watched year. a lot of Doncic um, I was just I was beyond sold when I watched Eurobasket from 2017 I just I couldn't believe how good he was against national teams that included a bunch of professionals um, if I had to force you to pick though who are your top three teams in the West next season. Let's see. So I've already said Golden State and Houston, and I feel fairly confident in those two. That's a big shocker. It's a big. I took a big step into the dark there. Um, I'm going to say OKC third. I think that kind of aligns with what I would pick as well. I was going. I was just going to ask who you would do. I, I think Utah will have a shot at number three. Um, honestly, this feels like a cop out, and it feels like I've said it probably ten times already, but. I could probably make a, a fairly strong argument for five or six teams being the number three seed. I could see the Jazz, maybe the Nuggets, maybe the Lakers getting into the top three in addition to the Thunder and the, the Rockets. And I'm just assuming the Warriors are there already. I'm not as high on the Timberwolves. I don't know who's still high on the Timberwolves, to be honest with you. What about the Pelicans? I, I just don't think they're deep enough on the wings. Anthony Davis is spectacular. Their front court rotation is mega interesting. I'm curious to see what it, it kind of looks like though, when it's all pieced together. And it kind of seems like they're always incorporating these semi-major moving parts on a yeah. annual basis. Uh, but it'll one thing that what really intrigues me about that team is I want to see if the Anthony Davis and the Drew Holiday that they got after the Cousins trade or after the cousin's injury, um, if those guys play all of 2018-19, if they get those versions of those two, that that team is really interesting to me. Hundred Drew Holiday was just Anthony Davis. He was incredible, and I think you look at what he did, and you could probably see him doing it again. And I'm not saying what Drew Holiday did was unsustainable, but Drew Holiday was absolutely incredible after the Demarcus Cousins trade. Yeah, and I think most people know about how good. Uh, um, Excuse Anthony me, Davis injury, was. not Demarcus. Not Demarcus Cousins. Yeah, injury. I did the same thing. I'm, I'm probably the one who put that in your head. I, I think just about everybody knows about the just absurd numbers that Anthony Davis put up after Cousins went down. Um, you don't hear quite as much about Drew Holiday, but I'm going to look it up now just for the sake of accuracy. From January 28th to the end of the season. He averaged 19.4 points, 
Um, 7.2 assists, 4.7 rebounds, 1.6 steals, one block, which is just crazy to me. 49.2% from the field, 34.5% from three. He was unbelievable. And then his playoff run, I, I think that's when a lot of people really started to take note. I mean, he just locked Damian Lillard down in that first round series. Um, so again, if they get the second half versions of those two guys, and if Julius Randle takes another step forward, I think he was pretty dang good last year. That's That team is interesting to me. Just another good team in the West. Um, yeah, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be like just absurd, um, and that's I guess the argument in support of you talking about why the Lakers may be hard pressed to make the playoffs. Again, LeBron's joining a thirty-five win team. I find it hard to believe that he's not going to add between ten and eighteen wins on his own. Yeah, I mean he he basically will, um, or he almost certainly will. All right, I'm gonna jump back to Facebook. Um, Colin Prince, this is my father-in-law, bold predictions for the 2018-19 season. This is like a Bleacher Report headline. I don't like just, just one bold. I'm going to say, uh, Anthony Davis wins MVP after my little Anthony Davis rant that I just went on. That's my bold prediction. Does that qualify as bold? (laughs) um well i mean yeah maybe it's not bold let me let me do you have any off the top of your head i think the raptors are going to trade Kawhi leonard again not again but i think Kawhi leonard will get traded again that's bold i don't think it speaks to anything that's wrong with toronto and i they might they very well could just let his contract run off the books and, and let him walk in free agency and then rebuild from there but there will be a team that if the Raptors do not have a, like a, this concrete hold on whether Leonard will come back or if, if he has made it clear that he's not going to come back, there will be a team that is willing to just send straight up salary fodder and, and something, a pick, a prospect, a young something. And the, I believe that the Raptors are resourceful enough to just capitalize on it. All right, here's here's maybe a more bold prediction. I'm going to say the Mavericks win 42 games. You are drunk. <laughs> the Mavericks are going to basically double you? their win total. They're going to win 18 more games than they did last year. That was such a quick, perfect reaction to that. <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to jump back to Twitter. This one is interesting to me. Colin Lewis, at Colin Lewis. How do you fix the player versus referee issues on both sides? Complaining on every single foul, star treatment, bad calls, controversial situations, etc. Any ideas on the player referee issues? I don't know that I have an idea. The only way to really neutralize it is to make everything reviewable. Maybe That's give coach maybe give coaches certain number of challenges like they have in the NFL without making everything, re- but they can use it on, on anything. And so that technically makes everything reviewable just because I think the only way that you're going to make the relationship better is to make it more, the result, the more accurate of, of these calls. But I even think, you know, there are players who argue with refs 
even when they clearly committed a foul. And that's always going oh, to be like ingrained to the NBA's constant. DNA. Yeah. I feel like so we've had the we've talked a lot about how much I complain about refs, especially no, during games. <laughs> um so I have a lot of thoughts on this. I think reviews one, and maybe th- this isn't like as much about attention between players and refs as it is just something that they need to do. Uh, and and I think this plays into what you said. I think all reviews need to be done almost instantaneously from the replay center in New Jersey or where, wherever that is, um, and just feed it into the refs' earpiece. And then you know maybe this does play into the players versus refs thing because if the ref overturns a call or whatever, the player can't really get mad at him because it's coming from some third party they don't even see in New Jersey. So it's not even worth arguing. So I think, I think instantaneous reviews is huge. I actually think that if a player elevates anything beyond like a normal conversation, like, Hey sir, what did I do wrong there? Um, just tee him up instantly. Just, just have as short a whistle as possible and hope that the players adjust to it over the first two or three months of whatever season you implement that. Um, because I, I mean, like I said, I complain about refs all the time. Oh, how did you miss that? Or how did you call that? Uh, but it, it really is, like Colin says in his question, it is constant with the players. And like you said, there's, there's so many plays where on the replay, it's clear that the guy just like whacks the dude and he still is screaming at the ref for five to 10 seconds afterward. Um, I don't know if it's a massive problem because it's, I mean, it's obviously not hurting the league's ratings or anything like that, but I do think it would probably make the game a little bit more enjoyable if you didn't have to see the constant back and forth between those two sides. Oh, for sure. And the, there's no way to really, unless you're giving the people in Secaucus control over game stoppage, the, like the live ball misses that play. There's no way to basically stop them from not getting back on defense. And maybe that's, yeah. you know what, unless they're cherry picking, maybe that's a quick T situation. Like if you're going to talk to them at all, while your team's going back on defense, team up. And that, <laughs> it's just, I, I, that's the only thing that I can, it seems drastic, but I don't know what, what are you supposed, because even if, even if we make every single dead ball call reviewable and it should be able to be so because within seconds, the, the guy, the, the people working in in Sakaka should be able to make that yeah, call. Yeah, they can well, figure that out fast. Yeah. The live game stuff is just, that's maddening. The the players arguing then or the missed calls, like how do you deal yeah, with those? that's impossible. Yeah, and yeah, maybe it's what we both just said. I think maybe at some point you have to draw a hard line and just start throwing tees around. <laughs> yeah, and right. And I think that initially, like that, that could probably make things worse between the players and the refs, but eventually they'd have to realize I'm not getting anywhere with this and I just have to play. So, and I mean, you would hope that would be the case, but I, I guess don't know. One of the problems with those theories that we laid out is the players would, and maybe rightfully so feel victimized just because what are, what is being they done? They would be to mad. Sure that, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. But I guess if you're making everything reviewable in Secaucus, but like double checking everything, then, then that's the, that's the referees' concession, and then the players' concession is knowing that they're going to get all those technicals. Yeah, and I'm not saying they can't talk to the refs at all. 
like I said, if you're willing to have a normal human interaction, like, hey, uh, you know, what did I do wrong here? And I think I've heard some players on various podcasts say stuff like, sometimes refs aren't willing to have that conversation even either. And I don't, I think that's bad too. Like refs should be willing to at least have a conversation about things, but it needs to be at the right time, like at a dead ball or during free throws or something like that. And it needs to be done the same way you would discuss an issue, like with your coworker at your regular job. Um, instead of just the, <laughs> the screaming in each other's face, it's just, it's, it just doesn't really, I don't think that works. What is the, what's the threshold for suspensions? Is it 16 technicals and then you're suspended? Yep, I think that's right. Maybe um, you could lower that. Just yeah. if what if you made it ten? That would be an extreme. A nice even number. And then you can That's another thing that players initially are gonna be very uh resistant to. It does seem like it's kind but, of oppressing their ability to express themselves, which I think is wrong. One of the things that needs to happen then though is that it, like every call needs to just be reinforced in Secaucus. That yeah. that would have to be that's the way to ensure I would think the most accuracy in those dead ball situations. You know what my brother's idea? My brother's radical idea. This is the guy who won Mountain West Conference Player of the Year and then he played professionally in Europe for a while. I'm I'm ready. I'm ready. He thinks players he thinks it should just be like pickup. Players call their own fouls and there's one neutral arbiter at half court, the ref. <laughs> That sounds like how we used to play tennis when I played for my college tennis team. You made your own calls, but there was a line judge who would. Yes, really exactly. Um, if there's a dispute, you you send it to the ref. I, um, I'm not sure how that would play out, but I like the idea. All right. This one, you're, you're going to love this one. <clears throat> Will Jimmer Fredette get a second chance at the NBA? Bart Gadbury. I feel like you should be the one. I don't. I shouldn't even have an opinion on this. this ha- As Jimmer Fredette's agent, what do you think? Will he? Um, what qualifies as a shot? Are we talking about getting a training camp invite? Oh, I think he can definitely get another training camp invite. I think the difference, what I'm saying is there's a difference between will he and should he. And I, I honestly still believe he could very easily, not very easily, he could be a solid player on somebody's bench. So I think he should get another shot. I think I've told you, I've compared his numbers. I think I even did like a stats thread about it. His numbers in China compared to some other guys who've had long and fruitful NBA careers in China. I I think he could definitely be an offensive weapon off somebody's bench. I just don't know if he is going to get that shot. Um, Some people are pointing to his performance in this basketball tournament that's going on right now. Have you watched any of those games? I saw briefly one of the opening ones. The level of competition is, is not good. It's like, um, it's either like around summer league level or maybe even a notch below. So I don't think we should put a ton of stock into him scoring 41 points in a game in this tournament. But I also, I, I could think of a few teams where he could probably play 15 to 20 minutes off the bench and put up three or four threes and be a valuable piece for somebody. I think that's the only answer we need. I don't need to get my input on it. Um, 
No rebuttal. Okay, let's see. I'd be interested to see it. Maybe put him in like, maybe on like one of the bad teams just to see what he could do when he's given a ton of playing time now. Like throw him on Atlanta, just have him come off the bench and chuck. Yeah, it would be interesting to see him with free reign. But I also, I think he could be somebody with a very defined role too. Just you're the guy who runs around off the ball and catches and shoots. I everybody has sort of branded him as he's unwilling to be that guy. Like I've I've heard that from a bunch of people. It's because he wasn't willing to adapt his game and play off the ball. I just don't think that's true. Um, and maybe I'm biased because we've had him on the podcast and I've talked to him a couple other times and he seems a really nice guy. But I, I just, <laughs> I feel like there there is a team somewhere that could make that work. Wasn't part of his issue, though, that he didn't really carve out a specialty role and it kind of seemed like he needed to be more of a focal point to make a tangible think- impact? I think that's what a lot of people said, but I don't I don't really know where the evidence was for that. Be, besides just like anecdotal he didn't want to do this. And I've asked him about it. Um and I don't think anybody would like straight up cop to doing that in an interview, but um I interviewed him for a piece for Bleacher Report a couple of years when he had that Spurs training camp invite and we talked about that and he said like no, I'm willing to do what a team wants me to do so i don't know um why well, didn't not even just a mindset thing just, yeah just like is he is he actually yeah I, because I, if I, he's I, not going to impact your offense to the degree of someone who's a focal point where he's going to you know jump start pick and rolls uh hit shots off the dribble and you just want him to be that three-point specialist I, I do think the his defense at the nba level when he's six two kind of comes into play and works against him because you're going to be less willing to keep a a, a a niche player on on the court if they're hurting you defensively just because he's not – he. I do think he could be fine in a catch-and-shoot role. I think he would thrive yeah. in it offensively. But how how much does he need to score? How accurate does he need to be in those situations to make the defensive trade – the defensive concessions worth it? That's, those are very fair points, and I'm sure um, two or three years or however long it's been in China, that's that's not exactly a place to refine and <laughs> throw your defensive abilities. So Look, I don't know if he's Jack any Cooley different. Just came out and said that there are not 300 players better than Jimmer Fredette, and he should be in the NBA. So oh, where did he say that? Did so, he tweet that? So basically, you've been you've been validated. Um, that's another. We need to get him on the podcast too. By the way. Um, a, a Jimmer, a Jimmer podcast featuring Jack Cooley. Yeah, let's just make it a roundtable. Um, I need to find where. Where did he say that? Um, da, 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 da. This is from who did he tell this to? Oh, Jody Genesee of the Deseret News. Uh, he provided comments from Cooley as he plays alongside for debt in the basketball tournament. He said, "There's no way there's 300 people better than him in basketball right now. No way." I absolutely think he should be in the NBA. I don't think there's a team that has 15 guys better than him. I don't see it. I agree. <laughs> Did you see and uh, Andy Bailey are basically the same person. You know what's funny is Jody Genesee calls me Jack Cooley. Because the first time he saw me at Summer League, he thought I looked like him. Um, I'm not entirely sure you're not him, to be honest with you. <laughs> One last thing on Jimmer. Did you see... Uh, Gosh, who was it? I think it was Jay King, the Celtics writer. 
somebody some Deadspin put out a headline that was like Jimmer Fredette, comma, of all people, comma, puts up forty one points in a basketball game. It was just this weird, like I don't, I don't even know the point of that headline. But Jay King quote tweeted it and said something like Jimmer is maybe the best scorer in the world outside the NBA. Um, why would you put or whatever whatever he said, I thought that was cool. Um, I'm I'm here for anybody who sticks up for Jimmer. You know this. Well, I mean, to criticize Jimmer's ability to score is just outlandish. Yeah, because, it's crazy. Yeah, especially in a setting like the basketball tournament, right? Or uh, playing in like playing in China. <laughs> yeah, David Nolan. This is from uh, Twitter at DC Prediction for Luka Doncic's rookie season, rookie of the year winner, and Dallas Mavericks record. Um. So, David, I kind of already answered the, the Dallas Mavericks record question. Um, 42 is my bold prediction. My more conservative estimate, I think I also said that at some point in this podcast, is like high 30s, which is even that's a, a, a big improvement over last year. Um, I can't remember who said this. It was somebody else on a podcast said they could see. It might have been one of the Ringer podcasts. So maybe like Kevin O'Connor uh, said something like, but what if? Luka Doncic has like a Joe Ingles level impact in his first year. And I could see that. And I actually think he'll probably be a little bit more aggressive as a scorer. In fact, I think he'll be a lot more aggressive as a scorer than Joe Ingles was. Um, so I could see him being at like 14, 15 points, uh, five or six rebounds and four or five assists a game. And I think he'll absolutely be in the rookie of the year conversation. I there's, I'm going to have to see how the first couple weeks or months of the season play out because I like this rookie class a lot, but I, I feel pretty confident saying he, he'll be in the discussion. I think he'll be there too. My only question right now would be where does he fall in Dallas's pecking order? Just looking at Dennis Smith Jr. having some control over the offense. Harrison Barnes needs to get touches. Uh, Dirk really isn't an issue, but how does that kind of three-man pecking order between Harrison Barnes, Dennis Smith Jr., and, and Luka Doncic shake out. Because if he's even if he's number two on that pecking order, that might take away from his rookie of the year appeal just a little bit. He would have to really shine on on defense or or make the most of his his scoring opportunities. And if Dallas does kind of fancy itself a playoff contender, how much is Rick Carlisle going to play him right off the bat? Is he going to have the free reign that Dennis Smith Jr. did last year, or, or are they going to be a little bit more inclined to try and keep him in check. That'll be his his opportunity because the rookie of the year race, as we've seen, ad nauseum, has a lot to do with volume and kind of yeah. how the Mavericks bring him along will say a, a lot. It'll inform a lot about his rookie of the year stock. That's a very, very good point. Um, all right, you want to do some rapid fire ones? Because I feel like... Yeah, we have sub 10 minutes left of this podcast. So let's rapid fire. Okay, <clears throat> Brad Boyer, when will the NBA expand to Seattle and Vegas? And do you see in-game betting as well? So he has a two-part question. Um, I think I think the, there's there's plenty of talent in the world for a 32-team NBA. I like the idea of divisions with four teams, like the NFL has. Uh, so I think I, I think they're kind of playing coy with expansion. But I feel like in the next five to ten years, I would hope that the Seattle Supersonics are back. Uh, Vegas seems like a good spot for number 32. And 
I, I think in-game betting is almost inevitable. They've already had their partnership with the MGM Grand announced, and I've when the when the gambling stuff first broke a few weeks ago, um, that was that was a big talking point. Was you know people are going to be able to make prop bets in the middle of the third quarter and stuff like that. So I feel like that's almost inevitable. I'm with you on all fronts there. The, the in-game betting is inevitable. It's just a matter of, is it this season or next season that they implement it? And it probably won't be this season. I, I would be a little bit surprised, but it wouldn't shock me beyond reason. And then as far as expansion, I think in 10 years, we'll see at two, we'll see two more teams in the NBA. One of them will be in Seattle. I don't know if the other one would be in Vegas, but that does seem kind of like a natural um, point for one of those yeah. teams to end up. And it seems like that, that city in that area has really embraced that new hockey team and the WNBA team. So maybe the NBA looks at that and thinks we can, we can follow that model too. Um, Andrew Angerbauer, how will the Rockets do assuming things work out with Carmelo? And before Dan answers this uh, plug, if you go to NBA math, Dan has a really good article about Carmelo and the Rockets. So if he doesn't, if we don't answer your question sufficiently, even if we do answer your question sufficiently, you should go read that too. But anyway, Rockets with Melo. We kind of already touched upon this. I think they're, they could still be the best team in the West. They could come close to replicating last year's 65 win total. They could have the best offense in the NBA. It's, it's just a matter of what's going to happen on defense and what role is he willing to assume? I don't think he's going to come off the bench. But is he willing to have a quick hook where then he comes out and he kind of runs a lot of bench-heavy units and the Rockets aren't as worried about staggering Chris Paul and James Harden? And then who's closing games? Because if you look at their starting lineup right now, it's probably, if we assume Melo's in there, you have Melo, Harden, Paul, Capella, and Tucker. I would say James Ennis makes more sense to be a member of that closing five than Carmelo Anthony. And that's going to just be the barometer, the bellwether for how this thing pans out. And it's such a tough question. I think what I ultimately think will happen is that the Rockets are going to be a team that, similar to last year, when you look at their win total, I think their identity is going to be a little bit different and tilt even more toward the offensive side. And I do, however, believe if Melo is going to figure it out in this part of his career, in the role that we know he's going to have to assume as this guy who goes at second units, who takes a lot of threes off the catch, if it was going to work, Houston is the place that it will it will work. Just because James Harden and Chris Paul are more natural passers than Russell Westbrook and Paul George, just craftier, and that should make life easier on him. Yeah, I agree with you all on all that. And I obviously have them being worse this year because I said they'll be in the mid-50s. And that's a that's a pretty big drop-off from a 65-win season last year. Um, and I, I really liked what Mike Dan... Did you see that interview with Mike D'Antonio standing in... D'Antonio. Mike D'Antoni standing in the parking lot the other day when he said something like, you guys all thought James Harden as a point guard wouldn't work. You all thought James Harden and Chris Paul together wouldn't work. So I'm basically was saying... You know, you all think Melo isn't going to work, and we're going to prove you wrong on that, too. I, the way he answered that was cool to me. Um, I think they have every reason to be confident because they've they've been bold and experimenting with stuff for the last few years, and it's always worked for them. So There's just have, a difference between it working and what their ceiling looks like if it does yeah, work. And I think their ceiling this season 
is lower than it was last season. And I think there's a difference between experimenting with James Harden and Chris Paul and experimenting with mid-30s Carmelo Anthony, um, who who's just never close to the level of player that Harden and Paul were. So it's a... <laughs> This is probably their boldest gamble yet, and and maybe it'll work out great for them. Um, but I just I think the drop off defensively from Ariza and Bob Mute to Melo is going to be very real, and there's going to be stretches where he kind of I would think commandeers the offense. But even as I'm like sorting out this thought in my mind, maybe there won't be just because Chris Paul and James Harden control every single possession. Um, so maybe that's not as as big a risk as I thought initially, but it's it's going to take some some adjusting, that's for sure, to plug in a player like Melo. Um, but again, I, I think they'll probably you know still locked in as at least the number two team in the West. Um, Jonathan at J A R A N A. What do the Bulls have to do to get back on the map? My God, this is like an entire podcast worth of a question. I, <laughs> they really they need to build around. They need to look at marketing and Wendell Carter Jr. as their primary building blocks and yep. see Zach Levine if he needs to be bring him off the bench. If it, um, this year you're not trying to oh. win, you could experiment with him in the starting lineup. But if he needs to be this microwave scorer off the bench, commit to it. And then with Jabari Parker, if you want to take the shot this season, I I still think it was a bad idea. But don't prioritize his development over marketing and Wendell Carter Jr. Those are the guys that need to see minutes at the four and five. Do not kind of throw uh, Parker in there to where Carter Jr. is not going to play as much because you want to make sure you get Parker minutes at the four. And if Jabari can't work out at the three defensively, if you're a bottom five defensive team, as I expect them to be when he's at the three, cut bait, use your cap flexibility next year. See maybe if you can get one of the younger free agents or just pick up a marquee wing, which you just need to stack up on in general. We say this about every team, but they essentially replaced David Nwaba with Jabari Parker. Parker has the higher ceiling as a player. Nwaba is the better fit. That's the direction that they need to go. They need to find a point guard as well, and that needs to be a priority in um, not just the drafts, but make sure you're not overpaying. I don't want to see them go into next summer and overpay Terry Rozier in restricted free yeah. agency. Continue to slow play this. Like it seems like you kind of learned. If you can't use your cap space on someone who fits with your timeline and your roster and your your price range, so to speak, then just let this play out because marketing and Carter Jr. are still super young and, and those guys are your future. I totally agree. Um, those two seem like the best building blocks to me. The thing about Carmelo, or not Carmelo, a uh, little slip there. The thing about Jabari Parker um, that's interesting to me with that deal is was the second year a player option or a team option? Team option. So if he's good and he can play the three, like you would think you would want him locked in for longer than two years um, to be able to continue to grow and develop with um, Wendell Carter and Lori Markinen, the just the whole Jabari thing in general is just kind of weird to me, and, and you talked about that as well. But I think you would prioritize, or I think they should prioritize Markinen and Carter, just like you said. I think Cameron Payne and Chris Dunn are both somewhat interesting, but I don't think they're like your point guard of the future. 
Um, so yeah, I, I think if they just sort out all that that stuff with the guards and the wings um, and just really focus on those two big guys, they have a chance to be good in a few years. It's, it's I'm just like recycling what you said. Um, last one <clears throat> from Mr. Edwards at Dana World 1985. Is Tibbs on the hot seat? Oof. Tom Thibodeau. I would say yes. I think so too. Just or at least he should be. Kind of like what's happening behind the scenes. Is Jimmy Butler really kind of pissed off at Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins? And if you lose Jimmy Butler in free agency, I don't know what the how does Tibbs turn back? Like Carl Anthony Towns would have to have the Timberwolves would have to be so successful when Jimmy Butler leaves in spite of that. If you have to trade him at midseason or if he just leaves in free agency, it would almost surprise me if Thibodeau was back the following year because if he leaves, it's because something is wrong. Yeah. Um, and he also I, hasn't shown the ability to flesh out the roster properly. They needed a wing this summer, and I think they had a good draft. But one, how often – we said this in the last pod. How often is he going to play Diop and Josh Okoge? And two, why did you hard cap yourself for Anthony Tolliver? Yeah. The roster moves have been weird. Um, I don't think that he has adapted to the modern game terribly well as a coach either. That puts it a little kindly. Yeah. Um, that stretch when Carl Anthony, I think it was in that first round series uh, this past year when Carl Anthony Towns was barely shooting the ball. Um, there's, there's just some interesting coaching things with him too. And I don't want to say the game has passed him by because I, I think, I think coaches are adaptable and they can figure things out. Um, some are anyway, but you have to show it at some point. And yeah, you, you mentioned the Jimmy Butler stuff. Um, if things continue to go sour with Carl Anthony towns, that might be even a bigger red flag than the Jimmy Butler stuff. So there's a lot going on with Minnesota. And if they don't, I feel like if they don't come out the gate hot this season and look like one of the, the stronger teams in the West, um, it'll almost certainly be on the hot seat. If you just look at their top two, how many how many teams have a better duo than Carl Anthony Towns and Jimmy Butler, just on talent alone? That list would be pretty short. Fewer than five, I would say. You have the Warriors, the Rockets. That is that it? I'm trying to maybe yeah, the Thunder, if depending on how high you are with Russell Westbrook and Paul George. Yeah, they're they're certainly in that conversation. I guess the Raptors have to. Kawhi Leonard and Kyle Lowry might be in that discussion. They're there. Philly uh, with maybe Joel Embiid and Simmons, maybe. Maybe the Celtics pick okay. two of their four. Pick two of their four guys. Um, but anyway, they're near the top in terms of duos, so they should be. A really, really good team, but like you said, they have they've never fleshed out that roster, um, and there's still some issues, game plan and, and strategy wise. So, if he's not on the hot seat now, um, I would be surprised if a rough start didn't put him there. And here's the problem with them too, where even if they play kind of well, Jimmy Butler might still decide to leave. They don't have the flexibility to to kind of retool. If you Give Carl Anthony Towns the max, and you carry Tyus Jones's cap hold, and maybe you don't. But looking at Jimmy Butler's salary, 
they're going to be at $140 million in commitments next year before re-signing Taj Gibson or an Anthony Tolliver or Derrick Rose. And if you lose Jimmy Butler, you have no cap space. You might have like minor cap space. It'll be easier, certainly, for you to have the full mid-level exception if Butler leaves. But you're locked into this group, essentially. And if if the ceiling is another 40-something win season and you're going to get bounced in the first round, even if you're healthy for most of the year, that what do you do? You're just, you're stuck. Like maybe there are some things you can do in 2020, but if you have Butler, Wiggins, and Carl Anthony Towns all at the max, there's almost $100 million of your cap right there, $95 million or whatever the actual number will be. Yeah, they're certainly in a very uh, precarious spot as a franchise right now. If if you get Carl Anthony Towns and then you lose him a few years later, um, that's not good. Well, they're going to sign him. He'll get. They'd be foolish not to give him a max extension now because there's nothing. Yeah, that's true. To really be gained by letting his situation leak into free agency. He's under team control for the next few years, at least. Um, Hopefully it just doesn't get bad enough that he's like demanding trades and stuff like that. But we'll see. Uh, that's that's one of the one frontiers that it seems like the team still have is the the players' first six or seven years of their career. Um, so they if they're smart, they'll lock him up, like he said. Anything else? Uh, I feel like we've, once again, thanks to you guys, covered a big chunk of the league. Anything else you want to add before we wrap this up, Dan? No, nope, I've got nothing. Um, thanks again to everyone for your questions. Like Dan said at the top, you were awesome enough to give us two podcasts worth of material. And honestly, we probably could have gone on for a couple more hours with your questions. So thank you. And apologies if we didn't get to yours. Uh, please continue to respond to us on Twitter because we love, we love getting those questions and we love talking about the things that you guys are interested in. Um, as always, make sure if you haven't rated the podcast yet to go ahead and do that. Uh, leave a review as well. Those are always really fun to read. And it's almost, not almost, it is still kind of surreal to me to <laughs> read podcast reviews of people who actually listen to us and, and like put stock in our opinions. It's really cool. Uh, we sincerely appreciate that. Tell your friends about the show. Uh, get them to subscribe. They will thank you later. That is the Andrew Bailey guarantee. <laughs> um, until next time, we leave you with the shout out to Ben Udry and Kyle Anderson. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.